Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you ace your exams at school and university through the psychology of high performance and the science of studying smarter, not harder. It's my pleasure to introduce your host, the Cambridge-trained memory psychologist and exam success coach, William Wadsworth. School was so hard for so much of my life, but I, and I never really understood why. Because there's on one hand, and in a very sort of intuitive sense, I felt I was smart. But if you looked at my grades and academic records and, and you know, the teacher reports, you know, things like, oh, like, if he applied himself, he could actually do something. Oh, he doesn't put in the effort. Oh, he's, you know, he needs to turn his, his assignments. Oh, it's disorganized, you know, he needs to get his stuff in on time. Like, I look back at my records, I'm like, how did nobody see that I had ADHD? I mean, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it was all right there. That was Eric Sivers from ADHD Rewired talking about his childhood experiences with ADHD. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD as it's better known, affects between 5 and 10% of adults and children around the world, depending on which study you read and which country you look at. So it's a fairly common form of neurodiversity, and so a really important one that we wanted to cover as part of this little mini-series on neurodiversity, partly because it affects uh, so many people, and partly because it has such a direct impact on our ability to study. Uh, if we're struggling to concentrate because we keep getting distracted and our mind wanders off, it makes it hard to focus in class and hard to focus when we're doing our independent work at home. In the conversation you're about to hear with Eric, we understand ADHD in a little more detail, as well as talking about a whole range of practical tips and tricks you can use to help you overcome some of the challenges if you have ADHD. And even if you don't, Many of Eric's tips are fantastic advice for anyone, even if we don't have ADHD, because they're just great advice for helping us stay focused, stay productive, and stay in control. So without further ado, let's meet Eric and get right into today's conversation. Well, hi, uh, my name is Eric Tivers. I am a uh, licensed clinical social worker by training, an entrepreneur turned coach, uh, I, I run the ADHD Rewired podcast. We have a, an intensive coaching group program for uh, for adults with ADHD, and we also have a, a virtual co working community for for adults with ADHD. And you know, we do a lot of college students uh, in there as well. I also have ADHD myself, which may be my top qualification for what I'm doing here. I'm in the I'm in the U.S. I'm an avid pickleball player, a motorcycle rider, fan of the band Fish. I've seen them like 50 times. In a nutshell, the the highlights of of a kind of who I am. Amazing. Well, it's so great to have you here. Really excited to dive into the conversation today. So I thought we could open and talk a little bit about the symptoms of ADHD. And you know, as you mentioned, you know, you yourself have ADHD. So maybe you could talk about the sort of symptoms you first experienced and are those sort of typical symptoms? What do you classically see in, you know, the wide variety of adults that you meet through your coaching? So I was diagnosed when I was 19, shortly after my disastrous first year of college, when I was a kid, my quote unquote diagnosis was lazy, which I know that a lot of people with ADHD, uh, especially who present more with the inattentive presentation, you know, because you can have ADHD without the H, which is a little weird. Some people call it ADD, but that's, they don't really call that anymore medically. 
So like for me, one of the one of those big like aha moments, I was talking to a um, friend at the time and this was like I was trying to figure out, all right, what am I going to do with my life now that I almost failed out of college? They were telling me that they were diagnosed with ADHD and they were telling me about it. And it was one of these moments where I felt like someone was inside of my brain and they're just describing my life experience. And it was that one of the biggest things had to do with when they were describing the difficulties they had when reading. The way I experienced reading prior to diagnosis and, and treatment, because I do, I started taking medication and have continued to take medication for ADHD. You know, I'd start reading and you know, within the first paragraph or two, something I read would trigger a thought about something, you know, that was maybe tangentially related. And then that thought might trigger two other thoughts. And now I have a whole stream of like 10 different thoughts going on at once. I'm still reading the words on the page, but not processing any of it, right? I get to the end of what I was supposed to read and I literally have no idea what I just read because I was thinking about all these other things. You know, so that was like one of the big things, um, you know, planning longer term projects would get very overwhelmed on my podcast, part of the intro of my podcast. So, you know, you know, the starting is the hardest part. So let's get started. And part of why I, I say that is because like activation, which is a, a, a challenge with, with ADHD is getting literally getting started. It's like we, we could have a faulty on off switch, right? It's sometimes hard to start. And sometimes it's also equally hard to stop once you get going. So that's why I always really try to focus on what is the smallest actual first step. Starting the paper is not like getting all your research documents. It's maybe just opening up a Word document. Sitting at your computer maybe is the first step, right? It's, and really breaking it down to, to kind of almost a silly small first actionable step. So, you know, the, the sort of nonstop wandering mind was one of my big symptoms. I guess it is a sense of internal restlessness. You know, a lot of... Uh, you know, so I didn't have that that hyperactivity, but I continue to have kind of that cognitive hyperactivity. Like it's it's rarely quiet in my head. I think when I'm on the motorcycle is one of the few times that my mind is actually quiet. I used to do a lot of uh, uh, sort of technical mountain biking, you know, kind of high adrenaline kind of stuff. And that was another time where my mind was kind of quiet. So it's because I'm getting the dopamine that I need. And that's part of what ADHD is. It is our dopamine uh, sort of reuptake doesn't really work well, you know, so we are seeking it and often feel like we're at a shortage of it, which is why we see lots of, of activation around the last minute when something is due, right? Until we have the, oh no, it's due tomorrow morning. Okay, it's 8 p.m. I should start now, right? And it's amazing how many papers I know I've written and others with ADHD have written and somehow miraculously pull off in like less than 24 hours before it's due when everyone else is working on it for, you know, weeks, if not months. Don't don't try this at home, kids. If you if you can help avoid it, but but it's a thing, definitely, isn't it? Eric, absolutely feel free to just give us the the slightly nerdy insight into the dopamine stuff and what's going on in the brain moment, because I'm I'm fascinated to learn more. Sure. So, you know, one of the things that we we know as far as like the genetic makeup where ADHD is so there's a specific gene, there's a number of genes that have been identified, but there's a specific gene um around uh, dopamine. That um, from the way I I understand it, and I'm I'm translating research that I've read from from Barclay, Russell Barclay, and, and others, is that a typical gene sequence of dopamine will have somewhere between like four to five dopamine I don't know strands in a row. So that means they they get people typical brains will they get their fill of dopamine, you know, when it fills those you know four or five strands. So not a, not a huge genetic strand. People with ADHD typically have somewhere between seven to maybe 11 
So we need more of that in order to feel the same thing, you know, because dopamine is a thing. It's, it's a feel good hormone. You know, it, it's, it's that neurotransmitter that helps with learning, with motivation, with activation. It's the stuff that it's kind of like the stuff that makes life worth living, <laughs> you know? I used to joke when I was an undergraduate psychologist, like, uh, you know, the, the answer to any exam question on psychology was, um, we're not quite sure yet, but probably got something to do with dopamine. <laughs> I have a, a, a fun shirt that said, uh, you know, follow the dopamine. With ADHD, here's the thing, like, especially this is really important for students, you know, especially for if you're a high school student, it's about to get better. Because in when in high school, at least in, in the US, like, you don't have much choice about what you're learning. You have all the requirements, a lot of the gen eds, and, and even in the start of university, too, you know, a lot of the gen eds that you just have to do no matter what. Once you get to study things you're interested in, it's amazing how much different the brain works. And so part of uh, ADHD, you know, you can look at it as either a an, sort of an interest deficit. So if you're not interested in what you're doing, like it's really hard to get the brain to cooperate, right? However, if you are interested in what you're doing, bombs can be going off all around you. And if like, you're into it, you're into it. It doesn't matter what's going on around you, you know? And so it's where hard work feels pleasurable because you're getting that sort of natural release of dopamine because you like what you're, what you're doing. So I always think it's, it's easier to be an adult with ADHD because you have more choices. It doesn't mean that adulting is easy, but you know, is but you do have more choices. Compared to when you're a kid yeah. and it's just all laid out for you, whether you, whether you like it or not. <laughs> Why do I have to do this? Because it's on the exam. I think that's a really important distinction, you know, topics you're interested in versus topics you're not interested in. So I was talking to a student the other day and she was getting so frustrated because she was saying, and if I know that I can sit down and focus for English, why is it that every time I sit down and try and focus for maths, it's difficult? It does get easier, but what can you do right now? You know, when it comes to like what's boring, it's we have to find a compelling why, even if we have to engineer that why, right? So, you know, maybe the why is because you value the relationship you have with somebody. Maybe the why is because you really want to get into a certain school and like you need to get certain grades to do that because like, while it's, it is harder for people with ADHD to think beyond not now, you know, cause we're very kind of, it's now or not now. Having a compelling why and then keeping that why visible so it reminds you of it. In my coaching groups, one of the things I talk about is almost all of the strategies that we need to build around our lives are to compensate for two specific things, memory and like time blindness. So, well, people are like, well, what about motivation? And like, oh yeah, that's, I would absolutely clump that with memory because we at the moment when we maybe started something or, or decided, yes, I'm going to go after this thing, we know the why, but that doesn't mean we remember the why even tomorrow, right? So like I tell people, like when they're making their to-do list, don't just put the what, include the why this thing matters. I mean, even sometimes include what happens if you, what's the actual consequence if you don't do it? So it's really about making those kind of emotional informed decisions, which kind of sounds like an oxymoron, but it's like, all right, like what's actually in it for me to either do this or not do this? And what's what are going to be the hopeful outcomes of that? And I really love that phrase you use, like making things visible. Sometimes when we talk to students with ADHD, they say, as soon as it's not in front of me, it doesn't exist. Out of sight, out of mind. Awesome. Absolutely. And that's something where, you know, that can actually be, you know, almost like a superpower. If you're feeling really overwhelmed with how much you have to do, it's great that as soon as it's not in front of you, you can just focus in on one thing. But again, like you said, if the why is suddenly not visible, it doesn't exist. And then that motivation for getting your task started is just gone. So 
I was really interested in the idea you were speaking about right at the beginning, reading, and then your mind going off in all sorts of directions. And this is another thing that came up in conversation the other day with a student. She was saying, I actually find, you know, sitting in class or even sitting down for revising, because my mind goes off on so many different tangents, and I find so many more things interesting. I feel that I end my session knowing more about everything I don't know. And actually, I've completely forgotten the thing I've sat down to try and learn. So if we're thinking about students sitting in a classroom, you work with adults, how do they stay focused in meetings and you know, sitting in the office? How do they try and stay on track on that one task? So there's a strategy that I've been using for almost two decades now. When I'm at the computer, you know, because there's a gazillion and one distractions at the computer, I will take two sticky notes each on the corner of my screen. So it's just a teeny bit like in the way, but like I can still like adjust the screen so I can still see everything. On one note, I tell myself, what am I actually doing right now? On the other note, I tell myself, what am I not supposed to be doing right now? And so because like scope creep is a real thing with ADHD, because because of our sort of divergent thinking styles, which can be great when it comes to like creativity, when you are trying to get a project done or have a specific like goal oriented task in mind, kind of exploring around the edges isn't always helpful or productive. It's almost like our mind can't help it. So we need that sort of almost as a horse blinders on like, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. Nope, we're not doing that. This is what we're doing. So it's, I mean, it seems kind of funny in in some ways, but it's actually really, really helpful because it is amazing how often I catch myself going, nope, nope, that is not what I'm doing right now. Directing my attention back to whatever it is I am doing. If you're in a meeting, maybe it's, uh, I'm a, I'm an advocate for keeping notes and notes can literally be not even notes that you're planning on going back to later notes for the thing that's in your mind right now that you don't want to forget, literally a word. So once a week, I actually go uh, through my desk and I just throw all these sticky notes that have scribbles on them that I can barely understand what any of them mean. But what that is, is just a placeholder for a little bit of working memory, right? So I don't forget the thing because I want to be able to pay attention to what's happening. Because what often happens, people are spending so much time and effort trying to remember what they are saying. Meanwhile, they kind of lost track of the conversation or because they know it's hard to remember what they were trying to say, they'll interrupt. And then that's not always received very well because, you know, in, in polite company, interrupting is kind of rude. I love that idea of like just keeping a piece of paper next to you every time you have a distraction, you know, almost like mindfulness, you acknowledge it, you put it down and then you try and go back and stay on track. I think that's a really good technique. It allows you to you know, sort of get a little bit of like fiddling and distraction in instead of just trying to stay still and just listen to one thing at once. We sort of use a variant on that with some of our, our clients. Often it comes up at sort of university level and beyond in particular when it's that rabbit hole problem is just enormous. You could go down so many little uh, rabbit holes branching off from the core subject. And yeah, we'd, we'd sometimes suggest to students, similar to your advice, I think, you know, just, just writing a list of those rabbit holes as they come up, write down those ideas as they come up. That sort of helps the brain let go of them in the moment, I think. And then, you know, hey, actually some of them, to be fair, could be good ideas that you might actually do want to spend a bit of time researching later but then you know you can review that list later on in the day once you've got a little bit of psychological distance with a little bit more detachment from it i think it's a great practice to uh have a some people call it a parking lot great idea brilliant idea comes to you like you don't want to lose that great don't lose it but don't go explore it either like write it down and then come back to what you're doing some of the times you look back at that list like oh yeah i do want to actually explore that that is a good idea other times you look at it like why would I want to do that? <laughs> you know, so it's, yeah, but, but it's about being clear with your intentions in that moment. And I think also acknowledging like the lure of the shiny, the new idea 
actually, you know, put it in the parking lot rather than chasing after it. Gets back to what you were talking about with you know, your mind going off and reading. If one technique is having the post-it note saying, okay, don't explore these ideas. Well, the flip side of that is if you actually want to stick on target and the thing in front of you isn't novel, isn't exciting, are there any techniques students can use to try and increase their interest in a topic that they might otherwise just find, for the want of a better word, slightly pointless, slightly boring? So I got a, that's a couple of things uh, on this. One of the things that I learned on how to create novelty was forget about grades and focus on learning. Stay curious, explore, find the areas that are interesting and go in deep. When I, so I was in my undergrad 20 years ago, um, but like I would, I would research, find like videos or articles that explain topics that like are, were just boring to me in like ways that were more fun. And I think now with the tools that are available, there's even more things that I could probably do that would make things more fun. Let's say you have a student who's trying to, um, uh, they have to learn some history lesson and it's dry and it's boring and blah, blah, blah. Throw the text of that history lesson into like chat GPT and tell it to like, you know, make it rhyme or turn it into a, like a rap in the, in the, in the uh, you know, style of whoever you like. All of a sudden, all that is fun and clever and now memorable. I mean, that's what a great way to learn. Like make it so it, it really activates what your brain needs. And I think the other thing that I think is so important that for uh, any kind of student to understand that studying does not just mean reading your textbook. That is not studying. Reviewing your notes is not studying. You need to actually be able to have a gap between a piece of information and be able to fill in the gap. Otherwise, you're just, you think you know it because you're reviewing it and it seems familiar, but that's not how it's going to be presented. And you want to be able to really understand the topic. So often we see students and they think, well, when I'm reading this textbook, I have the sense of familiarity. So obviously I remember it. And it's, you know, it's exactly like you said, right? An exam is not testing. Are you familiar? It's testing. Can you recall it? Can you understand this information and apply it somewhere new? Yeah, I loved your idea with ChatGPT and making information fun, making learning fun. If the format you're trying to learn in isn't working, choose a new one. So you know, there's so many like inspiring lectures on YouTube. There's podcasts that you can put on, you know, taking information in in a slightly different way. We're big proponents of using flashcards and so sort of gamifying your vision. It's so old school. And yet it's, I think it's still one of the most effective ways to, to really learn. I mean, it's, I should have bought stock and flashcards when I was in college and grad school because it was like the shoe boxes full I had was unbelievable. Because it's, you know, when you learn about like, you know, spaced repetition and, you know, it's, there's a science to it. When you figure out what actually works, like who doesn't like to be effective with what they do, right? Like, sure, like maybe we're not the fastest, uh, you know, studiers or whatever, but like when you find what works, that feels good. And you're going to want to rinse and repeat that method. And these days, there's so many different variations on that theme. You know, if you want to, if you prefer doing it digitally and sticking it into something like Quizlet or Anki, like those tools are, those tools are great. And um, yeah, yeah, I've got my shoebox. I still pull it out from time to time, sometimes to show people that, uh, you know, shoebox full of paper flashcards from my, my own undergrad days. And um, yeah, you're absolutely right. It works, works a treat. And it's, uh, it's something we talk about a lot <laughs> here on the podcast, you know, effective ways to, to learn. And you mentioned memory was kind of one of the, the like the core challenges with ADHD. Uh, is there anything else you'd sort of suggest people think about when it comes to effective learning strategy and kind of overcoming those memory difficulties? I think part of it is trying to figure out how do you how do you best retain information, and also like when do you best retain information? Like one of the one of the things that I learned, I don't know, probably came upon 
10 some years ago was recognizing that just because my calendar looks like this would be a good time to do a certain thing because there's a space in the calendar. Like if I'm planning my day in the morning and I have a project I want to work on and the, the only time on my calendar is like at 8 p.m. at night, like I what I used to do is make the error thinking that my brain in the morning is going to be the same brain I'm going to have in the evening. And then I would sit there and wonder, how come I keep avoiding this thing? It's like, oh, because I'm done for the day. I'm drained. I don't have the executive function left anymore to, to do this thing. So I think it's like being aware of energy levels, like cutting sleep is not a good strategy. You mentioned longer projects as being a bit of a challenge how to sort of manage your time over over those kind of big, hairy, unstructured projects and, you know, the risk of leaving everything to the last minute. Any tips for that? Yeah, this was actually something that I learned during my undergrad that I kind of figured out after just I was getting tired of the, the panic, like that due date way closer than I thought. So it starts with putting everything that you have from your syllabus into your calendar where you feel comfortable throwing away your syllabus, extracting that much information from breaking down what you have to be reading to when you're working on papers, uh, when you're studying. Um, I'm a huge proponent of both Google Doc or uh, Google Calendar or any kind of online calendar for this stuff, but also those dry erase calendars, like the, the four month where you can see a whole semester out. You need to consider one of them your master. And I definitely recommend the online versions of the three because it goes with you, right? And the other is just a visual cue, right? And so really having a very uh, sort of hard, fast rule, like it doesn't go on the dry erase calendar unless it is already on my digital calendar. Because I, you know, all through my academic uh, stuff from undergrad to, uh, to grad school, I always had a four-month dry erase calendar right where I was doing my studies. So the first couple of days of a semester, I would spend hours and hours and hours and hours kind of data mining all the information I would need done date for something needs to be different than the due date for something because without fail technical and like, issues will happen your printer will jam the internet goes out it's almost like front end cramming right it's like spend hours spend as many hours as you need to to fully understand what it is you need to do so for the long-term project stuff because otherwise it's you know, if you're just looking one week at a time, like that's not going to be enough for some of these long-term projects. Planning your week, you know, time travel every week, look four to six weeks out every time you're doing your weekly planning. So, because if it's in your calendar, you don't need to be surprised by it when you turn to that week on your calendar, right? I call it knowable time bombs. Don't be surprised. Like every week, slowly look for your calendar, go at least four, maybe six weeks out. Get in that habit of, of putting things on the calendar know, engineering urgency about stuff, getting regular uh, meetings with your professors. Like, believe it or not, your professor's probably favorite part of their job is actually when the, the students come and talk to them, right? Because they can get pretty lonely and bored in their offices all by themselves. Um, and when you build that relationship, this is probably one of the, my top sort of college uh, strategies. When you build those relationships with the professors and really show both interest and effort, right? Keep in mind, like, sure, your grade is based on, you know, the cumulative scores and of everything, but there's a human being that's entering those grades, right? If you have a good relationship with someone and you're on the cusp right between two different grades, there's a good chance your professor might just bump it up just a tiny bit to move you to the next, the next grade. Like, I can't even tell you how many times that has happened. Um, we were talking earlier, too, about, about interest, how important that is. Mm. I think that I negotiated every single like paper that I had to write to bet with my professors through my undergrad and grad school 
to bend it to something I was a little bit more interested in. It, and that to me was one of the most powerful strategies because I, I figured out kind of early on, oh, my brain just doesn't work if I am not interested in this thing, right? So how do I figure out how to make this more uh, interesting to me? And that, that worked, you know, that self-advocacy piece is huge. I was, I was recording a podcast. Um, well, I've recorded it yesterday, broadcast today, um, just a little solo podcast, just talking about like what you're talking about, like make take advantage of office hours. Like this is something I never did at at, uh, at university, and and admittedly, at, you know, where I went at Cambridge is a little bit more sort of small group contact, you know, laid on for you on a platter. But there's there's more you can seek out beyond that, and and I I was hopeless at going and seeking out those opportunities, and I think that's just such a missed opportunity. You know, even if you even if you're, you you know you don't get a grade boost out of it from talking your professor around then there's there's what you can learn from it you know those little ways of thinking about like what the professor wants to see on the exam paper like the way they want you to structure your argument like all that stuff just you know you you might not be picking it up explicitly you might always just be soaking it up by osmosis but like it's so so helpful even um I remember my first year, a lot of students would hang around the uh, at the front of the podium at the front of the lecture hall. You know, three hundred students would stream out the back doors, and like five would go to the front and stand around the podium, including one of my friends. And uh, I kind of looked on in disgust and horror and headed out the back door with everyone else. But in hindsight, I wish I'd gone and stood at the front, even just to listen, because there'd have been so much like little gems, little bits of gold, and you know, even if I was just listening to what other people were asking and how the professor was responding, like. I'd have just taken so much from that. Even just like five, 10 minutes at the end of a lecture would have been so helpful. Wish I'd done that. Yeah, and I found it too really, really helpful to, to try to get a seat in the front of the class as well. Because um, that's sort of like, it eliminated the option for me to kind of tune out and like distract myself if I was bored, right? It was sort of that, it was sort of creating that accountability. It's like, all right, I, I got to pay attention. I got to participate here. I can't, you know, just let my mind wander. Yeah, good tip, good tip. I think also sitting at the front of the class is something where, you know, we've talked a lot about like internal distractions, like your mind wandering, holding yourself accountable for not zoning out, but also, you know, you're also decreasing your chance of external distractions, right? If you sit near a friend, they're right there. You want to turn around and talk to them. But if you're at the front, you're right under the teacher's nose. You know, you've, like you said, right, you've held yourself accountable. You've planned ahead and sort of said, okay, not today distraction. I'm sitting away from you. Yeah. It's in a sense, it's, it's simple math, right? Like, move away from as many distractions as you can, you decrease the things that can distract you. Absolutely. So something I thought you might have some interesting insights in is the big thing students talk to talk about in revision, um, especially our students with ADHD, is just initiating a task. Like they sit down and they know what they're meant to be doing. They know which method they're going to be using to revise, but it's actually just getting started. Do you have any sort of top tips about you know getting that slightly underwhelming tasks started a couple of things if you can engineer urgency in any kind of way so maybe it's you uh, and so part of this can be with accountability so maybe it's um you have a, an accountability group and this is something we do with, with our in our coaching program so maybe it's here's the here's the thing i need to get uh, done today i want to start it by 10 a.m i'm going to send you a picture that i am actually at my computer with the you know the, the word document open um, by 10 a.m. And hey, if you don't hear from me by say 10:15, would you maybe check in with me and see if uh, you know? Hopefully, I just forgot to check in with you, but I'm actually working. But if not, uh, I'll let you know. Because you know, one of the things that because with with our coaching program, accountability is such a huge part of that. And one of the things we talk about um, right at the get go is that a lot of people when they're trying to create accountability structures 
are really create codependent structures. And so what does a codependent structure look like and how is that different? So a codependent structure is, hey, will you remind me at 10 a.m. I need to work on this thing? That's codependence, right? It's like, it's not somebody else's job to remind you, right? You got to do that yourself. You can say, I want to report to you that I've started. And will you kind of be that safety net? So just in case I, you know, my, I somehow got distracted and forgot about this thing. Like, will you check in if I don't check in at that agreed upon time? Right. So I think that's a really huge thing and really like focusing on starting. Um, you know, there, you know, I have my um, adult study hall program and adultstudyhall.com. It's a virtual co working community. Um, and there's, you know, you can sign up to work with, with groups there. You know, so there's lots of different ways to, to kind of get those initial tasks started. Study groups can be helpful, but they can also be distracting. I think it's worth trying, though, um, and just assessing, hey, is this working for me? And if you have like bigger stuff you got to do, I don't know, like if there's a, a longer term assignment, negotiate with the, the teacher to say, hey, can I like show you my progress like each week? I, I always tell people like, don't ever let a teacher give you a due date of whenever you get it to me. Like that is the kiss of death for any student with ADHD. Having regular check-ins that you can, that someone can really hold you to, I think is a really, really important uh, thing. We have to shorten that time horizon because our brain doesn't do time super well, right? Because if it's not now, it's we have plenty of time, you know? Right, right. Also something you could combine with like your visual calendar idea. If you, maybe you don't have a teacher to check in with, you know, if the student's doing longer extended essays and EPQs, they don't always have a teacher who's on hand across the summer, but you could put in, okay, in two weeks time, I'm going to have finished the research. And in, you know, two weeks time after that, I'm going to have a structure for the essay and, you know, making your own sort of mini deadlines. And then in effect, playing both the sort of accountable student and the teacher role within yourself. As we come towards the end, I just wanted to ask, I'm sure people listening will have got so much out of this. Where do we go for more? So you mentioned that, you know, your own podcast, your, your coaching program. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about the, the various places people can go. So uh, my, my website is ADHDrewired.com where you can find everything. So we actually have a, have a podcast network. So we have a couple other podcasts uh, on our network. We have our uh, our ADHD Rewired coaching and accountability groups. It's an intensive uh, 10 week, three times a week online program. Really, it's about community. It's about connection. It's about accountability. It's not just about getting things done. Uh, we do a lot of, of calendaring and productivity and, and like task management stuff. But that's sort of like the in-between stuff that holds like because connection is so important in this work to realize that like we're not our brains just work different and we just need different kinds of supports. We have a lot of great abilities. That's that's part of what our, our coaching program is. So you can find that on the website at adhrewired.com. Co-working community, you can find Adele Study Hall. There's a link on there. But if you want to learn more about what we're doing, the website is the best place to go at uh, adhdrewired.com. Well, we'll link that up in the show description. Eric, um, I'd love to just close out with your number one tip that you wish you'd known back when you were 18 years old. I think if my current self can go back to my sort of 17, 18, 19 year old self, I'll probably tell myself that like, you're going to figure it out. It's going to be hard. You're going to hit a bunch of roadblocks and, and bumps and you're going to fall sometimes, but you're resilient and keep getting back up and don't miss the opportunity to learn from failure. That's great advice. This has been so much fun. Thank you once again. And, and we'll, we'll talk soon. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Well, thanks again, Eric. 
from the ADHD Rewired podcast, ADHDrewired.com, as well as my co-host and partner here at Exam Study Expert, Dr. Alex Hibble, my co-host for the Neurodiversity series. Do join both of us again next week. Well, actually, it'll be just Alex taking the floor next week. I will be topping and tailing the episode, but Alex is leading the episode herself. We're going to be finishing off the Neurodiversity series with a final instalment on autism and autism spectrum disorders. So do join us again next week for that. I wanted to round off this episode with a few of my top takeaways from this episode with Eric, because I think there are some absolute gems buried in, uh, well, not that buried, but there are some absolute gems in and amongst all the things we were talking about today. A few of my favourites were including why you're going to do this in your to-do list. And I've actually started doing that with file names sometimes. So if there's a file name, a Word document or a spreadsheet or something that I'm working on, sometimes I will actually write some words in the file name to inspire me as to what the purpose of that file is. Um, So for example, if I was working on an essay, I might write, you know, the name of the essay, and then I might append uh, to help me get uh, a 4.0 GPA in my final assessment or whatever your goal with that uh, file is. Um, I also really like that strategy of the stickies to stay on task, one note that says what am I supposed to do, the other's what I'm not supposed to do, and combining that perhaps with that parking lot list as Eric described it, putting that, parking those, all those ideas that come to mind uh, of, of rabbit holes you might want to investigate later, but now's not the time. Go and see your professors, get a seat at the front of the class, engineer urgency through accountability partners. As I said back at the start, so many great ideas that are just great ideas for all of us, whether or not we have ADHD. So I hope there's been something for everyone in today's episode. As I say, do join us again next week. I look forward to seeing you then. For now, thanks ever so much for listening today and wishing you every success, as always, in your studies. Wasn't that wonderful? If you're feeling inspired, why not leave us a rating and a review in your podcast app? It would make our day. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.